ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hi there. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's editor at large, and this is FP Playlist. Each week, I try to help you sort through all the podcasts out there by recommending one show from somewhere around the world that I think you're going to like. This week, we're featuring a show called Babel, Translating the Middle East. The show is hosted by John Alterman, director of the Middle East program at the Center for International and Strategic Studies. As the show's name suggests, Babel features detailed discussions about the region with some of the Middle East's top experts. Now, Babel is definitely a wonky show, but we at Foreign Policy have no problem with that. Just the opposite, in fact. FP always aims to create a safe space for nerds and the nerd curious. But I should add that Babel isn't always serious. You'll hear that when you listen to the episode we're featuring this week, in which John talks to Carl Sharo, a Lebanese satirist, about comedy in the Arab world. I'm going to play that episode in just a few minutes, but first, here's a conversation I had with John, the show's creator. John, welcome to the podcast. Um, I've listened to your show Babel a bunch of times now, but describe it for listeners who haven't heard it yet. Tell, tell me, how did it come about and how you think of the mission? One of the things that's always frustrated me is it feels to me like I have a very different understanding of the Middle East than other people do. Um, that there are things I find really interesting that other people in the policy world are never covering. And I thought this was a vehicle to get people to think differently and to start to see some of the, the really interesting things in the Middle East, which to my mind aren't all about wars and conflicts, but are more about people and aspirations and frustrations that people have. And, and it's not all happy news, but it certainly is interesting. And it's not hearing about the Iranian nuclear program or the Iraq war or the Syrian civil war, the Yemeni civil war, we will do those things, but we'll integrate it into other kinds of topics as well. And what I think it does ultimately, it brings people into my head. This is why I do the Middle East, not because I'm a, a violence junkie, but because there are interesting things and people who are doing interesting things to try to make a better life for themselves and, and, and for their families. So tell me more about what you mean when you say that you see um, the region differently than other people do. Is this what you're referring to, that you don't just look at it through the lens of peace and security? One of the people we spoke to is a climate scientist at MIT who's originally from the Sudan, who talked about how climate change affects 
people's everyday life? How does it affect pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia? When you have Hajj in the summer and it's so hot, your body can't cool itself off. What does that do? We spoke to an Iraqi American uh, engineer who tried to, he's working on reclaiming the marshes in Iraq. Uh, we've spoken to people who run relief operations in Yemen. All kinds of really interesting people who are not part of the world I know from the Washington think tank community. They're not part of the policy world, but they have a lot of policy relevant things to say, even if all they're talking about isn't policy. Also talked to Bill Burns and Wendy Sherman, you know, people in the center of the policy world, but it's bringing together that whole world, all those conversations, and not just who's the most senior American official I can get to talk. You know, that's a great segue into the episode that we're focusing on this week, um, which I really loved. Um, it's the episode called Satire and Comedy in the Arab World um, with the, 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 the guest, um, the Lebanese satirist, uh, Carl Sharo. And what I, what I dug about it was precisely this, that it was so unexpected for a think tank um, podcast about the Middle East. So how did you pick the topic and the guest? So honestly, I've, I've, I've read some of Carl Sharrow's satire uh, on the web. I thought it, some of it is very, very funny. Um, you know, he's, he's Lebanese. It turns out that he's part Iraqi, um, did graduate work in the UK. He kind of comes to life as a bit of an outsider and he comes to satire as an outsider because he actually trained as an architect. Um, and somebody on my team said, He's, his Twitter feed is really funny. We should see if we can find him. And then through LinkedIn, I realized we have a good friend in common. I reached out to the friend. He was very responsive. He was actually, when we taped it, he was working on an architecture job in Saudi Arabia, sitting in his hotel room saying, I wonder how I'm going to spend this evening. And he spent the evening talking to me. We taped the podcast. And then we spoke for 45 more minutes about the Middle East. Is there something particular to Arab culture that makes comedy a particularly good avenue for getting into it? Or you could flip the question on its head and say, is there something particular about comedy that makes it a particularly good lens for looking at any culture? Here's the really, the thing I found most interesting in the podcast is Carl Schauer spent a bunch of time as a child in both Iraq and Syria because he had family in both places. I heard a bunch of Syrian jokes when I was learning Arabic, mostly told by Lebanese. I've never heard an Iraqi joke. He said, no, of course there are Iraqi jokes. He told an Iraqi joke. I think every society has humor and the more rules there are, the more ways there are to find comedic ways to break the rules. Because comedy after all is really about breaking rules. And there's a way by understanding somebody's comedy, you help to understand what the rules are. John Alterman, host of Babel, translating the Middle East. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you, Jonathan. And here's the episode, Satire and Comedy in the Arab World, which was originally dropped on December 15th, 2020. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week on Babel, John talks to Carl Sharo, the architect and satirist, who may be better known to some of our listeners as Carl Remarks. Then John, Natasha, and I continue the discussion about satire in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel.
Carl Sharo is an architect, satirist, and commentator on the Middle East. He blogs and tweets as Carl Remarks. In addition to his work in architecture, he's the author of, And Then God Created the Middle East and said, Let There Be Breaking News. Carl Sharo, thanks for joining us on Babel. Hi, John. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a very exciting opportunity to talk to your audience and obviously see my work through your eyes. So you have been doing this for more than 10 years. When did you realize you were funny? I think I'm still waiting <laughs> for that realization. There's an anxiety that comes with trying to be funny. Is that You never really believed that you're funny. So I'll tell you when I realized I can get away with writing satire and comedy and, and jokes and that's roughly around the beginnings of what was called then the Arab Spring. And obviously, it wasn't the most obvious a historical moment to ignite interest in comedy and humor and satire. But I think it came out, out of a frustration of some commentary on the events that were happening at the time that I personally felt was ripe for satire and comedy. And you grew up in Lebanon, but you spent a lot of time as a child visiting family in Iraq and Syria, authoritarian states that had their own tradition of subversive political humor, sometimes whispered, but still this sense of you have to poke fun, but you have to be careful how you poke fun. Did you see that playing a role in shaping how you approach this? Absolutely. I think that played a big role. I mean, it's very hard to explain to people from the outside the difference between Lebanon, even though that was happening during the Lebanese Civil War, so 70s and 80s, and when we felt largely free to speak our minds, obviously, you don't go in front of an armed militia guy and swear at his boss, or whatever it is. But you're largely free to, to speak your mind versus going to Syria and Iraq in those days when everything had to be hush-hush. And my cousins in Iraq in particular had this amazing sense of humor that was very subtle, not as sort of crass and blunt as the Lebanese sense of humor, which tended to be much more in your face. And to try exactly to get around those sensitivities. And there were kind of leeways for how you do that. So, for example, Isat al-Duri is the one who took the control back after Saddam's death. He was the second yeah. man all, all the time. Famously, he was put in that position when Saddam had all the real power because then people could joke about him. And that was permissible to a certain extent. So his character became you know, but of all jokes. So it's a very elaborate kind of Iraqi setup to, again, get around, you know, censorship and what's permissible. But essentially what I got from that, and I think it lay dormant for decades until I started writing satire, is this ability to kind of play with these nuances and kind of criticize the absurd, surreal political and social situation that we find ourselves in in the Middle East with more craft, so to speak, and more nuance. Do you have an example of sort yeah, of what I an Iraqi mean, political joke would be? Yeah, so for example, specifically on the political jokes, and as a Dori in particular, you know the habits of Saddam had of everything was uh, Saddam Airport, Saddam City, Saddam Hospital. So he goes around to Saddam and he says, you know, I'm the second man in our system, but there's nothing named after me. Everything is named after you. I want something named after me. And Saddam is like, don't worry, don't worry. I've heard you. I'm going to respond to your request. I'm going to name a hospital 
after you. So he goes the next day and sees the hospital and says, Izzat al-Duri Hospital, and underneath, owned by Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be the more political. Then there were obviously lots of very dark jokes about, particularly in different periods. So for example, the jokes you used to get in the 70s were different from the Iran-Iraq war jokes in the 80s when there was very dark jokes about, you know, there's no men remaining and are very bleak and you can only encounter that in Iraq. To then the period of the sanctions largely in the 90s, where again, the humor, I mean, it was a quite a violent transformation of society that goes in a very short period of time from your number one health problem being childhood obesity to becoming malnutrition. And then the humor then becomes about that. So it was always shifting. Um, what I think was interesting is you didn't actually hear any sort of sectarian jokes, which were very common in, in Lebanon, until the sanctions period towards the end. And then they become kind of much more present. And I think it was kind of an indication how of the ground was shifting and what was going to happen following the American invasion in 2003. So it was a way of actually tracking those social fissures within Iraq and anticipating the sectarian and confessional eruption that was to come after the invasion. When you told the joke about Ezzat Tadouri and, and building a hospital, it sounds a little bit like what I used to hear in Egypt with people telling Abdel Nasser jokes. I guess authoritarianism probably creates its own approach to humor, which may be more universal. As, as somebody who thinks a lot about humor in the Arab world, do you think there's sort of an Egyptian style and a Lebanese style and a Saudi style? Or is it really more driven by more authoritarian, more free? What are the margins? How do you get through? And how much cross-fertilization do you think there is in the Arab humor world? I think it's very specific in many respects. And I'll give you examples. In Iraq, you know, its history, it's witnessed a lot of violent periods. And I see the dark humor comes out much more with the Iraqi humorous style than others. And then there's the style of humor that comes from the outlook of the people, but there's also the social and political formation itself. So the kind of jokes that you would make in Lebanon, you know, simply because you don't have one authoritarian figure, but a hundred are by definition different. And then you get different styles. So for example, you know, Mubarak wasn't exactly of the same caliber of Saddam, let's say, and their repression manifested itself in different ways. And Particularly when you look, the humor doesn't tend to be abstract about the political system in the abstract, but about how people experience it. And how they experience it is through lack of employment, lack of basic foods. That was a very big theme. So it's through the specific shortages, so to speak. So there's a whole strand of what I would call Soviet humor. Like, for example, there's a Syrian joke that goes, they open a new chicken distribution center, all very modern, 12 stories. And uh, the guy goes to buy some chicken and they say, we have the brand new system. And he goes in and they say, would you want a organic chicken or battery farm chicken? And he says organic. They say, go to the first floor. Do you want chicken pieces or one whole chicken? He says, one whole chicken, go to the second floor. And he goes so on and so on. And he's going, you know, he gets to the 12th floor and they finally say, Look, we don't have any chicken, but how did you like our system? <laughs> but then obviously you get the very specific 
humor that emanates from, say, Lebanese sectarianism or Iraq's relationship with the Kurds. There's a lot of jokes about that as well. You tweet in both Arabic and English, more recently in English. Do you find that there's the same audience for your work in Arabic and English? And how does humor work differently in the Arabic context and in English language context? I think you're touching on what has been one of my key challenges, which is trying to translate my humor into Arabic. And really, it's not a mistake what I just said. I have to actually translate it because the humor comes from my English side and primarily through the things that I'm exposed to that influenced my comedic style. So, for example, the the writings of uh, Robert Persig or Woody Allen or Dorothy Parker or, you know, British satirists, because I could never emulate the great Arab satirists that have a lot of such a good command of the language to make the language itself almost like the subject matter of satire. And they can do it both in classical periods and in modern times. So it was always kind of a process of trying to take that Anglo-American type of humor and trying to put it in Arab context. Most of the time, it hasn't worked. I had a much more difficult time kind of developing an audience for that. Occasionally, I'll do something in Arabic that will be, you know, precise and to the point that that will go viral, but much less frequently than in English. To me, English is a very kind of dispensable language. I can use it in a very kind of throwaway fashion. It's not my first language. It's very expedient. I can use it in very flexibly. And if I start thinking or saying something in Arabic, you know, the humor isn't the first thing that comes, you know, especially classical Arabic. Then I find myself dreaming about the Andalus or... or, or <laughs> You know, wanting to write poetry about the desert night. Obviously, um, it, it's a joke, but it doesn't have that expedience for me. Are there humorists in the Arab world who are able to get a more international reach? I mean, certainly in the U.S., we've had Monty Python and Benny Hill, and there, there are certainly comedians who have crossed the ocean. Is there anybody in the Arab world who you think either has been able to do it or seems to be on the brink of being able to create a genuine regional audience? I mean, it's a tough question because a lot of these guys are my friends and I don't want to embarrass any of them. But I think they've done it in moments and in very specific moments because the topic they were talking about was quite resonant across. So you get someone like Basim Yusuf with the Barnamic, he gets a massive audience, starts out of Egypt, talks about something that feels universal in the Arab or the Middle Eastern context. There's Ahmad al-Bashir from Iraq. I absolutely love his work. Um, but it's very specific to Iraq. You know, a lot of the things that he would say in Iraqi, most Arabs wouldn't even be able to get. But, in, you know, when there's demonstration or something and comes to do this heartfelt but brutally funny thing, it resonates. But I can't say it's every episode, nor is he trying to make it accessible to an entire Arab or Middle Eastern audience in every single episode. Right. And that's where I think the challenge, this thing about what we call the Arab world, which is a problematic term in its own right now, is it has different components, different occupations. The national boundaries exist for a reason. There's different social preoccupations. And it's so visceral in a way that makes it harder to translate than, say, going from an American to a British context and vice versa, where there's a certain level of almost like a formulaic thing, especially since 2016. And as I always say as well, it's whenever a British comedian fails in Britain, we always send them to America and they thrive. <laughs> 
And um, that doesn't happen in the Arab world. The preoccupations are much more when you're when you're making satire, it's about things that you deeply feel. And it, that's why it's much harder to transpose from one context to the other. What do you think the really creative things are that are happening in Arab humor today? Oh, there's so much stuff. I mean, my favorite example that I always cite, even though that kind of the historic moment is almost gone now, but I'm sure we'll be reminded of it. Sadly, it's when ISIS was at its peak, there was this satirical Lebanese band that did an amazing song that played in cabarets in Beirut. Uh, the band is called The Great Departed, Rahel Kabir. It made fun of Maulana al-Baghdadi in very brutal terms. And this to me was the peak of what satire could be because it was something you could sing when you hear it, you, you would get into it and it was savage, but it was beautiful musically. And he kind of managed to hit a critique of ISIS on every level. And it was particularly resonant for me because there was a, a sort of left liberal tendency in the West to excuse ISIS. And in the name of trying to kind of contextualize why it emerged, it would kind of veer into apologism for what it represents, right? And this was an answer from deep within the region, you know, probably 200 kilometers away from where ISIS was just savagely brutal about ISIS's interpretation of Islam or understanding of Islam or any kind of pretense that these are oppressed people that are whatever. It completely savagely destroyed that. So that for me represents some of the peaks. Then there are other things happening that I can't keep on top of because you get all these young Egyptian YouTubers, TikTok guys, people like that. A lot of them, unfortunately, have been arrested and jailed. But, you know, all this new wave of younger guys, some of them doing music, doing audiovisual stuff, the word is overused, the word revolution, but actually it's quite organic. It's young people, they're expressing their outlooks and obviously don't agree necessarily on everything they say, but the style, I think it's very promising, but it also very diverse. It's not that Al Jazeera model, it's not the black and white. We don't want to necessarily talk about the bread shortages all the time. We will talk about that, but there's a lot of things. There's the youth aspirations, there's freedom. You look at the Gulf in particular, which I think is a very interesting part of the Middle East and the Arab world, and it's experienced very radical social transformation. The very few people from the outside are kind of recognizing its historic magnitude. And it's sort of happening simultaneously top down and bottom up. And that's why it's kind of a very interesting moment. But these people have to work within a specific political and social context, and they have to try to go around it. And it sounds like this is all driven by social media, driven by an audience desire to share and acquire rather than the broadcasting model, which for the Arab world for more than a half century was the dominant model. I think that's a great observation. And I think particularly like, for example, take my case. I started without any conventional outlet. I started through Twitter and blogging and a bit of YouTube, but that that much and found an audience through that. So I don't think social media created these phenomena. It actually gave people that had things to say, the medium to do it. And they're very savvy about it now, and they know how to utilize it, and they know how to stay on top of it. And I think that's what's really exciting about it. Who is your audience? I mean, because you're on Twitter, you have a very good sense for both who is paying attention to you and who is responding and how they're responding. Uh, you get some hate mail, you get some love mail. Who's paying attention to you as far as you can tell? I don't know the exact percentage, but my sort of standard answer and kind of my gut feel is 
half of the audience would be Arabs either or Middle Eastern people either in the Middle East or living abroad. And the other half would be Westerners or even, you know, to a lesser extent, people from Latin America, Africa, India, Pakistan, who are genuinely interested in the Middle East. But I think the Middle East uh, aspect is the connection. Very few people follow me because of my general humor, if you can call it that. And I think a humorous device I developed is a sort of kind of explaining the Middle East to an outside world. So you see all these guides that I do. And it became kind of the vehicle, but at the same time, it's why people are interested because they can hear something different about the Middle East. They can read satirical pieces about the factions of the Syrian revolution or whatever it is through a style that they can relate to. So those, I think, are the two components of my audience. And generally out of curiosity about the region, a desire for change within the region, But with it, I think, I don't think I'm necessarily trying to flatter myself here, but I think because my politics would cut across what I'm saying, there's a kind of recognition of that from the audience. It is your sort of liberalism, humanism, secularism. So yes, it's precisely that strand, particularly the the kind of the strand of thinking that's to do with secularism, the legacy of the Enlightenment. It's almost ideas that feel like so esoteric to talk about in the Anglo-American context now, but I think that has a resonance. And it has a resonance because I think a lot of people in the Middle East realize that for them, freedom of expression and speech is, is a matter of an existential question, and they're always being oppressed by top-down, right? And Or through society, whatever it is, but it's an oppressive mechanism to stop them. So they're actually fighting for it. They have clarity about it. Right. And they're willing to pay the price for it. And a lot of them do end up in jail and things like that. And I think that resonates. A sort of final question. Does your trainee as an architect inform your work as a satirist or does your approach to satire inform the way you approach architectural projects? Is there any interplay between your professional life and your creative outlet? I think it works from architecture to satire more than the other way around, as much as I tried to make it work the other way around. Architecture is way too (laughs) serious to inject satire in it. Although I do have a Twitter thread that talks about architectural jokes and particularly as seen in certain buildings. But the way that I found that relationship worked is, A, I was trained in a fantastic architecture school, which is the American University of Beirut at a point of time when there was a lot of emphasis on A, a multidisciplinary approach to architecture, B, emphasis on critical thinking in in its widest sense possible. So that equips you with the analytical skills and the burning desire to find, you know, inconsistencies in texts or narratives that you just want to kind of highlight. And I would single out, we were required to write a one page paper every Friday that had to be basically a thesis. It couldn't have been a descriptive text, right? And it's going to be pulled apart. And if it doesn't survive, you fail. And, you know, writing a one-page paper is much harder than writing a 10-page paper. And that training was absolutely fantastic. And it kind of helps when it came to blogging because you have to be very sharp, very analytical, very critical. And I remember even kind of taking my first steps in that. And, you know, the university accommodated that in 
we got to a point where we're studying what was termed postmodern architecture, which is kind of a period when everything becomes fluid and people are doing different things. And I like this American architect, Frank Gehry, who's designed Bilbao, among other fantastic buildings. So rather than submitting a paper, I wrote this fake interview with him and got a guy with an American accent to voice his answers and then made him say what I wanted to say and submitted a tape of that rather than a paper. And I, you know, I could have failed. They could have said, you know, we asked you for a paper when you've done. They actually, you know, accepted that and gave me a good grade for it. So it was actually a good way of trying to like experiment with satire in a way. And then the other thing that architecture gave me is, you know, so I do all these maps. For example, when I divide Europe the same way that the Middle East was divided, or when I divided America, because it's clearly things are not working, people are not getting along, and you have to split America to make it more manageable along ethnic and social lines. So it gives me the graphic tools to do all of that. And that was a huge help because in certain extent, I think a lot of the graphic material was more successful than necessarily the writing in certain instances, and it did have a lot of resonance. Carl Sharrow, who blogs and tweets as Carl Remarks. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Next up, John, Natasha, and I talk about satire in the Middle East and what it can tell us. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Hey there, Playlist fans. I'm Jack Detch. I cover the Pentagon here at Foreign Policy, which means I'm constantly trying to find out new things about what our military is doing at home and abroad, who we support, and why. Each morning, we gather for a daily news meeting to figure out how to cover the biggest stories around the world with news, analysis, and opinion pieces. But to do that well, we need your help. Please consider subscribing to FP. You'll get access not just to the podcasts we make, but the stories we write. And you'll be supporting the kind of journalism that's hard to find these days. For a listener discount, go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and enter podcast at checkout. Okay, back to the show. The favorite political joke I heard when I was living in Egypt is people used to make fun of Hassan Mubarak and said he wasn't very smart. And the story is that one day a foreign diplomat went to Hassan Mubarak and gave him a puzzle. And Mubarak started playing with the puzzle and diplomat left and the his aide came to his office and said, Mr. President, your next appointment is here. And Mubarak said, cancel my next appointment. In fact, cancel my appointments for the rest of the day. I'm playing with this puzzle. Next morning, Mubarak comes into his office early, locks the door. His aide knocks on the door. He said, Mr. President, your first appointment is here. He said, I'm not seeing anybody today either. I'm playing with a puzzle. It goes on for a week, two weeks. The press agents start to worry. We have to get the president in the newspaper. We have to get him on television. We're running out of stock footage. It goes on for a month, two months. Starts to be a rumor mill in Cairo. Nobody's really seen the president. Finally, after three months, 
the president emerges from his office, flings open the French doors, and his aide looks at him and says, Mr. President, what is it? And Mubarak says, aha, I showed all those foreigners who say I'm such an idiot. I finished this puzzle in only three months, and the box said three to five years. <laughs> Where did you hear that? I heard it in Cairo. You know, and, and the thing is, there were jokes people told about Mubarak. Some of them weren't very clean, but you could joke about Hus Mubarak. I think a lot of the Syrian political jokes you would hear in Lebanon, where people would tell them outside. I have to tell you, when I was studying Arabic, people told me there were no Iraqi political jokes. It was too dangerous. Carl Shower said there were, but I can tell you, I bounced around the Middle East. I never heard of Iraqi political joke. It's funny, we actually had a joke from Jordan, maybe the rest of the Levant, about Iraqis for that reason, for their intensity. And it's called, uh, And Mabsut, or Basata is the root of that word, means happy or happiness. So to say that somebody is sort of happy, like the happiness of Iraqi, is kind of a joke, that they're very intense. Because in Iraqi dialect, for reasons that I do not understand, Basata, that same root, actually means to beat. So it was good to hear that Carl had heard many Iraqi jokes and there's humor there too. And it goes back such a long way as well. One of the things that sort of annoys me when I see news after things like the Charlie Hebdo attacks and people in the news say, oh, people don't know how to make fun of themselves in, in the Middle East or there's no sense of humor. I mean, I think satire goes back such a long way. And in my undergrad, I studied classical Arabic literature, and so much of it is about satire. I have to say, it's maybe not quite so funny when you're struggling through classical Arabic literature as it, as it would have been then. But I mean, there's some really, really famous ones. There's Al-Jahiz, who's considered, I think, one of the greatest figures in classical Arabic literature. His name literally means goggly-eyed, and he was sort of famous for lampooning his contemporaries and really anyone who thought they were too big for their boots, he would write about in a really scathing but very amusing way. And it goes way back before him with tribes lampooning each other and whatnot in the pre-Islamic times. So uh, it's got a very long history. But I wonder how each of you have seen comedy sort of shifting in the Arab world. You know, as Carl said, it's partly in response to conditions. I remember in Egypt, when I first went there in, in 1991, there were still the sort of Soviet jokes about shortages and, and the old story about, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us and things like that. I started hearing jokes about different things, more jokes about authority. But as, as Carl said, that there's a way in which people joke about what's on their mind. And I think that the best way to really ruin somebody's image or maybe even cause changes is, is through this satire. Because if you can laugh about somebody, then the cult of personality or their godlike image is tarnished and it disappears. And if they become human, then perhaps they could even be replaced. And this was something that Bashir, he's a satirist from Iraq, who's now in self-imposed exile in Jordan, but he, he spoke about this, that if you, if you laugh at Saddam or if you laugh at ISIS, then they're no longer heroes. There's something that can be sort of done about them. And I think you know, that that's if... dangerous. Yes. And so I wanted to ask your take on that as well. How does sort of satire work differently in authoritarian contexts? Well, so it seems to me that satire at its core 
much of humor is about surprise. You take something that's very conventional and then you invert it somehow. You, you have a surprise ending. You have a punchline. And it seems to me that in some ways authoritarianism is so much about expectations and rules that it kind of opens itself up to people with subtle, not entirely confrontational, but subversive ways of talking about universally accepted norms. So authoritarianism almost creates the circumstances of satire. With the Arab Spring, I think that that changed a bit and you actually saw cartoonists and satirists more directly attacking some of these authoritarian governments and, and the leaders, in fact, as well. And you saw cartoonists like Ali Farzat in, in Syria, who one of my favorite cartoons of his is he shows Bashar al-Assad sort of flexing his muscles. He's probably a foot tall and he's looking into a mirror, a huge mirror of himself you know, sort of gloating on this glorified image. And he, you know, during the Arab Spring was beaten severely and his hands were broken. And I think that this has created more importance for anonymity when it comes to comedy and satire in the Arab world, because it seems that those that make a name for themselves tend to have to go into self-imposed exile. One thing that I've noticed is that because a lot of these creators are now in exile in either Western countries or in Lebanon, as they are trying to open themselves up to a larger audience. Al-Hadud is sort of the, the Arabic onion, and it's recently been producing things in English as well. And so I think that there is sort of this acknowledgement that others might want to hear a bit about this and the Arab world, and that shows the importance of it, politically speaking, as well as a harbinger for what might come. Well, all that is true. I think it's also hard to draw a lot of conclusions. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what conclusions we can draw about the United States from examining Twitter, other than the fact we're becoming more polarized. But I don't know what you do with it. I mean, if you were to say there's greater polarization in the Arab world. This doesn't tell you what will happen to power. It doesn't tell you people's relationship to politics. Perhaps you can tell more about the region through the reaction to such comedy or satire. As John was mentioning, there was a lot of jokes about Mubarak. There was even some really crude jokes about Morsi, and some people were detained and interrogated. But you don't see the level of oppression that you are now seeing with Sisi, there was just a comedian, uh, Shadi Abu Zaid, who was released from Cairo, I think last month, who had been detained for two years without trial. So I think that that leeway to make those seemingly harmless criticisms is, is less pronounced in the region today. And that could tell us something about, unfortunately, some trends for the future. And, you know, and one of the really important things to keep in mind is there's a way in which social media leaves fingerprints everywhere. And if you're an intelligence service, social media is amazing because you can map all these networks. And I guarantee you, Middle East intelligence services are doing this. And so while on the one hand, we can see it as a remarkable flowering of creativity, for authoritarian governments, there's a way in which humor allows them to map their domestic opposition in ways they couldn't do before. One of the things I heard in Saudi Arabia after the Arab Spring was when the, the Muslim Brotherhood seemed to be rising in the Middle East, they all came out of the woodwork. And now we know where they are. And they used 
support from the Muslim Brotherhood as a way to map political movements in the kingdom that they weren't even sure of. And I think humor and the way people share humor can also be used that way. There are people who say, I don't care. There are people who say it's too big. Certainly the intelligence services weren't able to save Hassan Mubarak. There's a danger that in being subversive, they also make themselves vulnerable. Yeah. And and maybe they think that the risks are outweighed by the potential benefit of having your voice heard, being able to sort of stand up to powerful authorities. I mean, going back to what Natasha said about being able to make fun of ISIS sort of destroys the mystique of ISIS if, as it stops being so terrifying if you can sing songs mocking them just 100 or 200 kilometers away, as Carl said. So maybe to end on a sort of slightly positive note, I think it can be helpful and it can help break down some of these fearsome figures. Well, I think we'll end on that note then. I've enjoyed this episode and was very, very happy to have Carl Sharrow on. So thank you both for joining me. On next week's episode, we have a meze about secondhand food markets in Egypt. That was satire and comedy in the Arab world from the podcast Babel, translating the Middle East. It was first aired December 15th, 2020. And that's the end of this week's Foreign Policy Playlist. Rob Sachs and Sofia Sanchez produced today's show. Thanks also to the Center for International and Strategic Studies for letting us broadcast Babel. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to clue me into a great podcast I might not already know about, please email me at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. I'll see you again next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> <laughs>